0: There's so much we can learn about ourselves when we think about trees. Did you know that in some one, God says you shall be like a tree? When we follow Jesus, it begins when we are like a tiny seed or a sapling, firmly planted and too weak to stand on its own. As we grow up in the truth, we send our roots down. They keep us fed and strong. But beware, becoming what God created us to be isn't always easy. They are bad forces that work against us, and it takes faith and discipline to get through them. But once you mature and discover your gifts, you grow fruit, delicious fruit that you can share with everyone around you. And there's nothing more beautiful than watching how your life, which started out as a little seed, can multiply into the lives of others. This could be you, a majestic tree going deep growing wide, living tall, and bearing lots and lots of fruit.
1: Well, good morning. Today we continue in our spiritual formation series, and uh, we're about halfway done. And so we're getting to the growing phase. And uh, the growing phase is interesting because this is the phase where we talk about how the, the green starts to come out of the earth and the, the plant starts to show some life. And, and it's an exciting phase. And uh, really what we're trying to do is look out in nature to see a model for spiritual formation in the Scriptures, and that's actually quite a challenge for us because the Centers for Disease Control say that uh, Americans spend about 90% of their times their time indoors, not outdoors. Uh, I was I was just reading some stats this week. The New York Daily News said that the average American watches between 30 and 40 hours of television every week. The highest amount was those over 65. And uh, take a look at this infograph chart from Hootsuite, which shows our internet usage. Uh, around the world. Out of seven billion people on the planet, five billion of us are using a mobile phone. Four billion of us are using the internet. And if you look on the right hand side, you will see that now over four billion of us use social media. That's 53% of the planet's total population. Worldwide, the average user spends two hours and 25 minutes on social media every single day. That's like 15 hours a week on social media, all of this happening usually inside, not outside. 90% of our time spent indoors. As little as 100 years ago, though, Just think about how different life was for the average human being on this planet. Imagine a world where watching television and playing video games or wasting time on social media was not even available to you. Imagine a world where instead of working in an office building, most people actually worked outside in nature. Imagine a world where instead of driving in in an enclosed climate-controlled car uh, to go to work, listening to Sirius satellite radio along the way, Instead, most people walked or rode a horse or just sort of enjoyed the landscape on their way. Uh, In that world, it was much easier for people to connect with God's creation. As a result, our appreciation for nature, because we spend so much time inside, has depreciated, and many times the lessons out there in nature are being lost on us. Uh, theologian T.M. Moore is one of the few modern thinkers talking about this in his book, Consider the Lilies, a plea for creational theology. He said this. He said, most people trudge through their daily routines of trade and toil, unmindful of the shimmering and beckoning around them. Uh, they take creation for granted. Having shod their feet with the comforts of material existence, they surfeit themselves with an abundance of things, preferring these rather than any firsthand experience of God revealing himself in what he has made. And so in this series, we're just offering you an invitation, an invitation, a journey, if you will, to go on this spiritual journey with us to rediscover some important truths that are found not inside but outside. Uh, not indoors, but outdoors, out there in nature, and 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 seeing this biblical model for change, which is more organic, or more botanical, or more agricultural, in nature. Last week we talked about how Christian change is unique and it is distinct, uh, but it is powerful. It's the kind of change that you see in a vineyard. And today we want to continue that theme with a message that I've just simply entitled "Soul Food." Soul food. All plants need food. All plants need nutrients. All plants need water and and soil and nourishment and sunlight to grow. And so does your soul. In fact, if your soul does not get spiritual nourishment, rather than growing, it may deteriorate and decay. And so in your workbook on page 89, if you brought that with you, as we enter into rule number six, of the spiritual formation process, which is this, practice the spiritual disciplines or you will wither and burn out. Practice the spiritual disciplines or you will wither and burn out. And so for this topic, we're going to look at a well-known story in Luke chapter 10. If you have a copy of God's Word, you can join me there, where we meet two women in this story named Mary and Martha. And throughout the message, you'll see three movements today. We're going to see the problem, and then we're going to see the solution, and then we're going to see the application. The problem, the solution, and then the application. So that's where we're headed today, but why don't we ask the Lord for his help? Would you pray with me together? God, would you help us now to just quiet our souls for a moment? As we look at your word, would you free us from distraction? Free us from anything that would prevent us from hearing from you right now. You have our attention And we would invite you to speak, Lord, for your people are listening. We ask that for Christ's sake, for his reputation. And all God's people said, amen. Movement one, the problem. Before I look at the passage, let me just introduce you to a term you may not be familiar with called hurry sickness. Hurry sickness is a behavior pattern characterized by constant, continual rushing and anxiousness. In the the magazine Psychology Today, they describe it this way. It is a malaise in which a person feels chronically short of time and so tends to perform every task faster and to get flustered when encountering any kind of delay. If you're wondering if you have hurry sickness, it would probably look like this. If you go to the shop right or the grocery store and you get into the shortest possible line on purpose, and then when you're in that line, you look over at the line you would have been in to see if it's going faster than the one you chose to see, if you you may be suffering from hurry sickness. Similar situation, choosing the lane at a stoplight. You get the idea. This is hurry sickness, and a lot of us understand what this is like in our day. But let me tell you, it's not good. Hurry sickness can do violence on the soul. It's not a new problem. It's an old problem. Uh, Jesus addresses this problem in Luke chapter 10. So now let's take a look at that passage. The word of the Lord says this. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet The word of the Lord. One thing is necessary. One thing is necessary. Here is a contrast. It's a contrast between these two women. Uh, These two women are both Jesus' friends, and they are very different. They are even opposites. You got anybody in your life that's so different from you, that's so opposite from you, and if you're honest, sometimes they drive you a little crazy because of those differences? I know what you're saying. If you're a Martha, uh, and you have a Mary in your life, you're always looking at Mary like, would you please hurry up? We got places to go. We got things to do. And if you're a Mary and you have a Martha in your life, you're always feeling like this person is bossing you around. You're just so bossy. Everything is so controlling with you. You're too bossy. Now, these two people, Mary and Martha, indicate kind of patterns that we experience, not just in the world, but sometimes in our own hearts. People who are like Martha, you don't like this story. You hate this story. This is like your least favorite story in the Bible. People who are like Mary... You love this story. Like, this is your story. Like, finally, we're getting to this story. I've been looking forward to this story. Martha, Martha, she shows her love by doing things. You know that book, The Five Languages of Love? She shows her love by the acts of service that she does. That's Martha right here. She's action-oriented. Martha says actions speak louder than words, right? That's Martha. But Mary's, they show their love by listening, by spending time, but they value relationships. Marthas value responsibilities and worry about all their responsibilities. Marys worry about their relationships. Marthas oftentimes can't sit still. They have an endless to-do list. If you sit down and watch a movie with a Martha, she'll get up from the movie 10 times while you're watching the movie. I got to go check on the laundry. Let me just smudge this thing off the TV. Oh, I got to go do this and that. Martha cannot sit still. Endless to-do list. And the world needs Marthas. Uh, Martha holds onto her phone, checks it all the time. She knows that she's needed. People need Martha. Mary, she doesn't even know where her phone is. Her phone is, <laughs> is buried under the couch. It's definitely not charged up. Mary is just not really keeping track of her device like she should. You know what I'm saying here, right? <laughs> Martha is usually the boss in life, wherever she goes, very bossy. Mary's don't like to be bossed around. You can ask her. you got to ask nicely, though. You can't be bossing Mary like that. Martha says, there's no time for that. we got to get this done. Martha's don't take time for even going on vacation. If they do go on vacation, they bring their laptop on their vacation, and they work the entire vacation. You know Martha. Mary's don't go on vacation either because they don't have any money to go on vacation. (laughs) Martha says, if... If Martha doesn't cook, Jesus doesn't eat. And Mary goes, look, Jesus can take five loaves and two fish and feed a stadium if he wants to feed these people. You know that movie Frozen? This is a good example of the two character types, right? Elsa is Martha. She's the leader. She's struggling. She's always stressed. She's always working hard. Mary, do you want to build a snowman? Martha's like, no, I don't. There's no time for snowmen. (laughs) Now, both of these women were God's friends. And if we're honest, we can be like each of them in different relationships at different times in our lives. But there's a particular way that we need to consider what Mary has to teach us in this story because Jesus is commending her for something. And in this passage, the something is that she's spending extended time with the Lord Jesus, which is that one thing that's necessary. See, Martha, she took the right first step and invited Jesus into her home. But though he was in her home... When he arrived, she didn't take time to spend with him. And that's like many of us. We have invited the Lord Jesus into our lives. And now that he's here, we just simply don't take time to spend with him. But this one thing is necessary. Sometimes we think, God, I'll have time for you later Maybe when the kids leave the house, maybe when I finish school, when I accomplish this or that, I'll have more time then, I'll spend time with you, God, then, not today, too much to do today. But let me ask those of you who are wives in the room, if you're married, how would you feel if you said to your husband, honey, we need to talk? And your husband said, well, honey, I have to work, no time for talking, no time for that, I got to make money, I'm busy at work. Ladies, what would you say? You might say, well, honey, nothing wrong with working, nothing wrong with the money. Please bring home the money. <laughs> but if we don't have each other, if we don't have this one thing, then all of those other things aren't really worth it, right? One thing is necessary, the Lord Jesus says. This is the relationship with God that we, we have to cultivate. We have to nourish it like a plant needs nourishment in a garden. This is that abiding with God that we spoke about last week. Like any relationship, hurry can get in the way. You can't really listen to somebody in a hurry. You you can't really spend time with somebody in a hurry. You can't love someone in a hurry. I heard about this conversation with this guy, John. He was a pastor, big church, mega church in Chicago. Uh, Author, great speaker huge ministry, and he called his friend, Dallas Willard, who often writes on spiritual formation. John was just getting too busy in the ministry. He was overbooked. He was getting sucked into the pace of this huge mega church in Chicago, and in that busy city and all the demands of the ministry, he calls his friend, Dallas, and he says, listen, Dallas, I am stuck. I'm stuck. I don't know what to do. I'm running ragged here. My calendar's out of control. My schedule's out of control. Do you have any advice? And Dallas paused for a long time, and said these two sentences. "Hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life." John goes, "Wow, that's like amazing. That's so why? Got any more wisdom? What else you got, Dallas?" And he goes, "No, no." The, That's it. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. The great enemy, if somebody asked me about the great enemy, all the challenges that we face today, I would probably list some that we're facing in our day. I would probably say, you know, there's the challenge of letting go of sound doctrine. There's a challenge of the redefinition of human sexuality. There's the challenge of the polarization of our culture. There's the challenge that we're facing of the deterioration of public discourse. I don't know if I listed the challenges and the enemies that I would even put hurry on the list, much less at the top of the list. But the more I think about it, the more I realize I might be missing this key threat in my own life every day, every hour, every minute. Hurry. Hurry. It's everywhere. It's that small rush of dopamine you get when there's a notification on your phone. It's that just one more hour at work, dear, in the office when you really should go home. It's one more yes without saying no in your already very busy life. Hurry is everywhere and it will cause your spiritual formation to wither. A few few days ago, I was on the phone with a friend, and she's a psychologist. She has her PsyDs, so she's really smart, really sharp, and we're talking, and she's very insightful, and she goes, hey, Dave, how are you enjoying the 50-degree weather out there today? (laughs) And I looked out my window, and I was like, oh. You know something? I didn't notice that it was such a nice day out there today, And then she goes, so Dave, what's got you so busy and distracted that you're not really fully present in your body today? That's the kind of questions my psychologist friends ask me. (laughs) You know how they are, very annoying. But in this case, (laughs) she was right on. I was way too hurried that morning. I didn't even notice how nice it was. Ever been there? Michael Ziccarelli, a doctor in Pennsylvania, did this study on 20,000 Christians, not a small sample. And he identified busyness as the major distraction to people's life with God. And he described this cycle. I'll put the cycle on the screen. He says it might be the case that first, Christians are assimilating a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload which leads to, second, God becoming more and more marginalized in the Christian's life, which leads to, third, a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to, four, Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live, which leads to, five, more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, and then the cycle begins again. Uh, Ronald... Rolheiser, a Catholic writer, obviously I've got some disagreements with him, but I think he's right on in this quote. He says this, today, a number of historical circumstances are blindly flowing together and accidentally conspiring to produce a climate within which it is difficult not just to think about God or to pray, but simply to have any interior depth whatsoever. We are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion, pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. And so what he's saying is that the need of the day is for a slowed-down spirituality. One of the things about older followers of Jesus is that they move a lot slower I used to think when I was younger, it was because they were old and slow. But what if that's not the reason? What if it's because they are wise? What if they are like that character in the Lord of the Rings trilogy? You remember that forest of tree people called the Ents, who are really, really slow, and all the hobbits are getting annoyed with how slow the trees are, and they say, why are you so slow? And one of the Ents, named Treebeard, uh, says this. You must understand, young hobbit, it takes a long time to say anything in old entish, and we never say anything unless it is worth taking a long time to say. Perhaps you and I need that invitation from Treebeard this morning to slow down a bit. Or perhaps you need the invitation from the Lord Jesus himself. In Mark chapter 6 Verse 31, the scene is described this way. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. And if you study the life of Jesus, you notice one thing, that he was rarely in a hurry. He was present in each moment. All the way in, present with his Father in heaven, present to each person who is in front of him, present to creation. Look at the birds of the air. Present to his own soul. My soul is deeply troubled. In other words, Jesus puts on display for us a present, non hurried way of life. And we need to learn from him, not just how to be saved, but after we're saved how to be a human, which leads us to movement two. We've seen the problem. Now let's take a look at the solution. But before we get to the solution, I think we need to know how we got here. And so for this, I wanna give you a brief history of time. A brief history of time. The modern clock was first invented in the monastery. St. Benedict came up with this idea of having fixed hours of prayer throughout the day, seven different hours of prayer. Hard to do that without a clock. And so the clock was invented by the monks. But most historians will point to the year 1370 in Cologne, Germany, as the watershed event in time, as that was when the first time ever a public clock was erected in society. Before that, time was like more abstract and seasonal. People would mark the time by the sun and by the seasons. And then clocks came around, and we began to mark our time a little differently. And then this guy, Thomas Edison, came along and invented this thing called the light bulb. And now, even though it was dark at night, we still could keep working. And all of a sudden, time started to warp and woof a little bit around our lives. Americans used to sleep before Edison 10 to 11 hours each night. Now the average American sleeps seven hours every night. That's a big difference. And then on the heels of Edison came the entire Industrial Revolution. In the 1900s, more and more labor-saving devices came into our lives. Appliances like furnaces and dishwashers and washing machines and everything. They were supposed to all combine together to save us more time. Uh, Just imagine how much time I would spend if all winter my family had to depend on my fireplace or a wood-burning stove and, and, and I had to do all that chopping and splitting and burning wood. That would take a whole lot of my time. Think of this, we used to have to write letters to people across the globe, and we would wait sometimes weeks, months to hear a response from that same person. Now, we just take out our phone, pull out WhatsApp, and we could text somebody in India, and they text us right back in the next second. It's amazing. Now, consider this we are more efficient now with our time than ever in the history of the world. In fact, in the 1960s, there were these social scientists that were making these predictions. They're really actually quite hilarious. They said things like, at this rate, by the year 1985, our leisure time would actually start to be too much. They said the average American would start to need to only work like 22 hours a week, and they would only need to work like 27 weeks out of the year. This was their prediction. It's kind of funny, isn't it? Can you even imagine that world? And then came the year 2007. In the year 2007, when the history books are written about us, I think that they will point to this year as a key inflection point, just as key as all the other ones on the the screen there. 2007 was the year that Steve Jobs launched the iPhone. It was also the year Facebook went global. It was the year that Twitter went global. It was the year the App Store uh, blew up. It was also the year that they started putting silicon chips in these things. It was the year the iCloud was launched. 2007 is kind of the official start date of the digital age. And so 2007 more than anything else, has shown us over the last 15 years since 2007 that our lives have been dramatically changed because of this invention of the smartphone. And now it it is decreasing, even demolishing, our capacity for attention, for being present. Now think about the implications of that for relationships with others and your relationship with God. Psychologists describe most of us, most Westerners' behaviors with their phone as a compulsion. We have to check that text. We have to check that email. We have to check that notification. We have to check that alert. What is that? Well, let me give you the definition of an addiction. An addiction is defined as, quote, the relentless pull to a substance or an activity that becomes so compulsive it ultimately interferes with everyday life. Now, by that definition, everybody I know is addicted to their phone, including me. If you don't think that's you, go home and turn off your phone for the next 24 hours and track how long it takes you to be writhing on the floor going crazy, (laughs) wondering what's going on in the world in your phone. Friends, we have a problem we have a problem, and the solution to our problem is not more time. Please don't tell me, oh, I wish I had a couple more hours in the day. Come on. You know what would happen if we put a couple more hours in the day. We would fill up those couple more hours in the day with everything we're filling up our days with now, and then we would be right back in this predicament that we're in, right? That's what would happen. Just be honest with yourself. The solution to this problem cannot be more time. The solution is a slowing down, simplification, and a prioritization of the essentials until it's too late. Peter Pendel recommended that I get this book by Ruth Haley Barton. I'm really glad I did. It's called Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership, and it's been really nourishing to me. She describes 10 symptoms of hurry sickness, and I'll put them on the screen. She says irritability. If this is you, you have hurry sickness. Irritability, hypersensitivity, restlessness, compulsive overworking, numbness, escapist behaviors, disconnection from identity and calling. Number eight, not able to attend to human needs. Number nine, hoarding your energy. Number 10, slippage in spiritual practices. Irritability, huh? Did you notice how angry Martha got in the story today? Did you notice how upset she was? Let me put that passage back on the screen for you. Look at what she says. Lord, don't you care? You know how this feels, right? You ever invite some people over for dinner? You have some hospitality and you've got some guests coming over and then they're all there at your home. They're sitting, they're reclining, and you're the only one serving. So much pressure. This is Martha. Lord, don't you care? Are you here? Tell her to help me. And she falls, like many of us, into self-pity. And she begins to have this hurry sickness. And oftentimes when that's you and me, we begin to have a heart of anger and blame and rebuke and self-righteousness. And so Jesus responds to her with two words, Martha, Martha. Now those two words are not a rebuke. This is not him scolding her. If you study the Bible and you see how many times God uses someone's first name two times, you will see every single time it is a message of intimacy and love. Uh, David with his son who was uh, leaving him says, what, Absalom, Absalom. Saul on the road to Damascus. Saul, Saul, Martha, Martha, I, I know you. I love you. You're worried about so many things, Martha. But you've forgotten the one thing that's necessary. Time with me. Not that details are unimportant or working hard is, is, is unimportant. You should work hard. You should pay attention to the details. We thank God for people like Martha who get it done. But, but, but if you don't also spend time at the Lord Jesus' feet, you're going to be running around making yourself miserable and making everybody else miserable too. Our souls need this spiritual food. If we don't get it, we will wither and we will burn out. And to structure our lives, we need what's called discipline. Paul says to his young protege, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily training is just slightly beneficial, but godliness is beneficial for all things. Since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The term discipline there is the Greek term gymnazo. It's where we get our word gymnasium. Think about the Olympic athletes you've seen this past week. How much discipline and training that they commit to. Just like that, in our spiritual lives, we need discipline to flourish and grow. Paul says, discipline yourself, which means it's your responsibility. Why? For the purpose of godliness. The term godliness is another way of saying for the purpose of your spiritual formation. And Paul says it takes discipline to pursue that. Why? Because godliness has great value, not just in this life, but also in the life to come. Friends, just like a tree needs water, just like a tree needs sunlight and nutrients and food, your soul must be fed spiritually. This is that abiding we talked about last Sunday. It's so important, but it takes discipline. You know, think about a physical meal. Most of us will probably eat lunch after church today. Most of us are planning on eating today, unless you're fasting for some reason. Uh, Most of us, we wouldn't even think about missing a physical meal. We've got groceries in the house. We've got food in the fridge and in the pan. We're ready to eat. We are not gonna miss that. But we think nothing of missing a meal spiritually. As if it doesn't make a difference, but yet it does. Uh, Christian author Donald Whitney says it this way The only road to Christian maturity passes through the practice of the spiritual disciplines. The only road. And so this is why we want to spend a little time on this. What what are those disciplines? If you have your workbook, open it up to page 91. You're going to see a list of the classical spiritual disciplines there that are found in the Scriptures. Notice in your workbook that there's two different columns. There's the disciplines of abstinence, which means you abstain from something or you refrain from something, like fasting or solitude, refraining from time with others. And then there's the disciplines of engagement, These disciplines are you taking advantage of something as a spiritual source of food, like Bible reading and prayer. Take a moment and just notice the disciplines, the classical disciplines on that page if you have your workbook. Now, as you look at that, let me make sure you know what we're not saying. What we're not saying is that these are good works for you to do to gain virtue. What we're not saying is that these will gain you merit before God. These are not to induce guilt if you don't do them. These are time-tested ways that the saints of old have found of being with Jesus and abiding in the vine and following God and thriving and flourishing in their spiritual lives. Dallas Willard has a great definition of the disciplines. He says this, they are simply activities of the mind and body to bring our personality in line with the divine order. That's what they are. Some people call them means of grace. Some people say they're channels by which we can access the streams of living water. Spiritual disciplines are doing what we can do so that we can do what we can't do. Let me offer this statement. When I first began in the ministry 20 years ago, it wasn't three months in until I was so dry, so weary, had nothing more to offer people, and I realized I need a source of spiritual food if I'm gonna do this thing. I mean, with three, within three months, I burned through all the stuff that I had planned in the seminary. Like, you gotta be with God. You gotta have spiritual disciplines in your life for your soul to continue to be fed. Let me put this chart on the screen and just draw out a couple of them here. Like Bible reading. We've talked about that a number of times. This is so important. It's the most important discipline. There is no substitute. Your soul needs the meat of the word of God. But not just reading it. You also need to take time to meditate on the word of God. Scriptural meditation is biblical. Let's say you only have 10 minutes for Bible reading. Please don't spend the whole 10 minutes reading. Spend five minutes reading, and then spend five minutes in meditation. Your soul needs the word of God. Or solitude. Solitude is is not the same as isolation. Solitude is when you take God to a place where you're going to be alone with yourself and him intentionally. This is what the Lord Jesus practiced. Take a look at Luke chapter 5. It says this, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Even the Lord Jesus, you see, would need to get away for a little while and pray, spend time with his Father in solitude. He needed to practice this regular rhythm of grace, this spiritual discipline, and he did not have a sin nature like I do. How much more do I need this? You know, there's this false teaching that crept into the early church called docetism, and it was the belief that maybe Jesus wasn't really human. Maybe he just seemed human, Um, It was hard for them to believe he had a real physical body like we do, like bones like ours and organs like ours and a brain like ours. But in the Gospels, we see Jesus in all of his humanity. We see him eating and sleeping and crying and feeling and resting and praying. And here we see him slipping away for time alone with his heavenly Father. We see the full range of the human experience in the Lord Jesus. And if he needed this, how much more do I need this in my spiritual life? To get alone, have some solitude with the Lord, and really just get honest with God. To ask myself that old question that John Wesley used to ask his colleagues, how is it with your soul? How am I really doing? How am I actually feeling? If you're like me, you don't want to go to that place because it's painful. But it's God who meets us right there in the pain. And so we go to solitude. Now you might say, well, Pastor Dave, take a look at this chart again. How do I choose which disciplines to engage? I mean, there's so many. And the answer is not all of them at once. You engage the disciplines in an area where you're weak, where you're not strong. This is why there's no braggadociousness. Dallas Willard said, people who think they're spiritually superior because they practice these spiritual disciplines are entirely missing the point. The need for extensive practice of any of these given disciplines is an indication, he says, of our weakness, not our strength. We can even lay it down as a rule of thumb, he says, that if it's easy for us to engage in a certain discipline, we probably don't need to practice it. It reminds me of that conversation with Pete Rose, the old baseball player, when they were talking to him and asking him how he got such phenomenal success. And he just simply said, You know know what I do? I practice what I'm not good at. (laughs) Most folks practice what they're good at. So let's ask ourselves what, what am I not good at? Which of those behaviors on the screen would be challenging for me? Where do I need some training? If you're self-indulgent, maybe, maybe try fasting. Richard Foster defines fasting as, as the involuntary denial. I'll put it on the screen for you here. The, in, the voluntary denial of an otherwise normal function for the sake of intense spiritual activity. Nothing wrong with food, but food is a symbol of God's divine provision and when you fast, you say, I love the reality more than the symbol. I love being with God more than this symbol of his sustenance. And there's a lot of other disciplines that you can try here in your workbook. I just encourage you to dive a little deeper into this subject. And let's try that with movement three, Let's get a little bit practical in terms of application. Everybody needs to develop something, and it's called a rule of life. Now, the word rule, don't misunderstand that, like keeping the rules, checking the boxes. The word rule actually comes from the Greek word trellis, where they would build a structure and the vines would hang on the rule, that it would hang on the trellis. A rule of life is a way to structure your life in such a way that you can nourish your soul with these disciplines. And so you say, how do I get started? Right where you are, right in the job that you're working, right in the family that you're in, right with your neighborhood, your friends. This is just practically walking with God in your everyday life. So here's four ideas. The first one is solitude. And my encouragement, if you commute, is to make the most of the time in your car. Uh, Use the time in your vehicle to engage one of these spiritual disciplines this week. Turn off the serious satellite radio uh, and practice solitude. Practice slowing down in the car. Drive the speed limit. There's like a law about that in New Jersey. I don't know if we follow that law. When you come to a stop sign, stop. There's a law about that too, I think, in New Jersey. I'm not sure. Here's an idea. Drive in the slow lane. Go over to the right and just hang out over there and watch the crazy people flying by you and just take that time to say, Lord, I just want to spend this time with you in solitude. Try that one day this week. Number two, second idea, try out silence by turning off your phone. When's the last time you powered off your phone, like full-on power off? So here's my challenge. Turn it off. Maybe you want to start, like, I'm just going to turn it off a little early tonight, like 8.30. I'm going to turn it off a little early. Or maybe I'm going to turn it on a little later this morning, like, I'm going to wait till like 9.30 in the morning to turn this thing on. Just live without your phone for a little bit. And then as you get better at that, take a more of a digital Sabbath and try it. I know it's crazy. Try it. You know, I remember growing up, there used to be this thing called boredom. Yeah. <laughs> We would go to a coffee shop and like wait in line. And when we were waiting in line, there was like, you just had to wait there. There was no phone to pull out and pull out social media or text your friend or check your, there was like, you just stared at the person in back of you <laughs> and in front of you. I mean, you stared at the back of their head. I mean, you was just bored. But what happened back then is boredom for the Christian oftentimes used to be a portal for prayer. But what would happen if in a society all of those portals for prayer were taken away? Because your first instinct was not to talk with God, but your first instinct was to grab your phone. What would be the cumulative effect of something like that on the Christian church? So that's my challenge. Just try turning off your phone for a little bit. What if you just turned off your phone for 30 minutes and just worked on the workbook one day this week? Okay, idea number three is prayer Practicing the daily examine. Prayer is so important. Spending time communicating with God. This is what Martha missed in the story. Okay, so at the end of your chapter this week, there's, a, there's a, an exercise called the daily examine. It's hundreds and hundreds of years old. It's a very famous classical prayer. It's a way of engaging with God. It takes you like 15 minutes. So you sit there and you quiet your soul and you take a few breaths and then you spend some time in gratitude with God. And then silently you just kind of review your day and you think about the last 24 hours. And you notice if there was any shortcomings in your life and you ask God to show you that, areas to grow. And then you commit to God to work on that in the next day. Daily exam. 15 minutes. It's a powerful exercise. The workbook will walk you right through it. I encourage you to try that out. Final idea, idea number four. Pay attention to interruptions. This will help you combat hurry sickness. Some of the best moments in your life are interruptions. These are opportunities that could be a moment from God to you to meet with someone or talk with someone or bless someone or serve someone or display love for them. And if you're too hurried and harried, you won't take advantage of that interruption. John Wesley used to consider every interruption in his life a divine appointment. Okay, so that's four ideas. Now everybody just take a deep breath with me. I know that was a lot. It's more of a practical message, some ideas. I don't want you to get overwhelmed with this. Just think of one thing. What's one idea you heard today that you could put into practice in your life this week? What's that one thing that God is prompting you toward that you heard about in the message today And you go, I'm going to try that this week and feed my soul. What is that one thing for you? This is not a judgment. This is an invitation for you. And I know this is not easy. This is hard. I don't do this well. I'm right there with you. I'm raising kids. I understand the demands of work. I get it. It's hard. But everything worth doing in life is hard. And if Jesus were here, right here in 2022, I think he would be going a little slower than we are. And maybe he would come to you and come to me and he would say your name two times. And he would say, you're so worried about so many things, but don't forget, there's one thing that's necessary. Eugene Peterson, who translated the message has this great way of summarizing Jesus' great invitation in Matthew chapter 11. As the worship team comes, let me read this invitation for you today. It reads like this. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Friends, practice the spiritual disciplines, or you will wither and burn out. And Heavenly Father, how grateful we are that though we live in such a frantic, harried pace, It's no wonder our souls are tired and weary. Would you help us to find a way to connect, to bring some balance into our lives and especially back into our relationship with you? Would you help us to turn our eyes on Jesus? Would you help us to look full in his wonderful face? And may the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.